Where do I start? How do I train recall? How long should we work on healing before moving on? Is crate training really that important? We hear these questions all the time and there's one answer that will help with all of them. The complete step-by-step -step dog training course found at Standing Stone Supply. They break down the what, when, where, and how to train your own dog from eight weeks to one year old. They've got it all laid out for you down to even the daily activity checklist to keep you and your puppy on track. Check out standingstonesupply.com and remember to use code GDIY to save 10%. GDIY profiles are bonus episodes that tell the stories of how your everyday handler got into the gun dog world. You'll hear plenty of examples of what to do as well as what not to do and how they learn from those experiences. These episodes are being put out to tell the honest stories that we as do-it-yourself dog handlers can all relate to. If you think you would be a good fit for a profile episode, please go to gundogityourself.com and complete the contact form and we may get back to you so that you can share your story. All right, everybody, welcome back to another edition of the GDIY Profile presented by Standing Stone Supply. I'm joined this time by Matt Morgan. Matt, how you doing, buddy? Doing really good, Nick. How about yourself? Living the dream as always. Go ahead and start off with what we start off every time. Tell everybody where you're calling from and what kind of dogs you run. Well, hey, everyone. My name is Matt Morgan. I'm uh, from Americus, Georgia, which is in southwest Georgia. Um, I've got two poodle pointers and a Bracco Italiano. Two poodle pointers, which that's yeah. you know that that's a pretty common breed, or at least growing in popularity. The Bracco Italiano. What? Let's start with the Bracco because I actually met the Bracco a few years ago at a, at a test down yep. in Georgia. Uh, I need to hear the backstory. What brought the Bracco into your life? So, <clears throat> when I was a kid growing up, we always had basset hounds. Um, you know, bass and hounds are good for a couple things, eating food and just being pets. <laughs> right. And, yep. And um, I started dating my wife. And like I said, we always had a basset. And um, my mom and I went to a place outside of Atlanta to go pick up a puppy for herself. And when I, were, I was there, um, I wound up buying a male dog out of the litter, too, for my wife. So she loves Fell in love with the basset hound. She, at the time, we weren't married. We were still dating. But um, she was living in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was in Athens. Well, no, I had moved down back home. So I was back home in, um, in, in Americas. And um, so I had to keep the dog. But she fell in love with it. We had that basset hound and another basset hound for several years. And <clears throat> then I got a poodle pointer, and I got into hunting. And... Um, Basically, I was kind of tired of the basset hounds just eating food and barking at me. <laughs> so I remember looking at a versatile hunting dog magazine, uh, the NABDA VHD magazine, and um, I saw a Bracco in there. And I said, man, that looks like a basset hound with long legs. And I showed it to her and <clears throat> started doing research on it. And there's not, not a whole lot of them. There are more now. But back then, there were not a lot that were involved in NABDA and I said listen if we're going to have another dog I want to be able to hunt I want to be able to take it places I mean I like the Bassets but they're not you know they're just kind of pets I want it to serve a purpose so I found a guy in Iowa and um he had a puppy he had actually been with uh, the grandmother had been to the Invitational twice I think it was the first Bracco ever to go to Invitational I was about to say you can't and, say that about too many Bracos. Right. And, and he had 
he had, didn't own that dog, but he owned a female out of her. He trained that dog and tested that dog. And I was like, man, I need to talk to this guy. And I got to talking to him and um, he had a litter of one puppy. And I don't, I don't know how many people he talked with, but he, he chose Robin and I to, to be that dog's home. And, and we have T, we flew up to Iowa and bought Tito, brought him back home to America. So, all right. And how did that That's journey, kind of the, how'd the journey the, come once you got him home? You know, cause I, I have kind of an affinity for hounds with my, my backstory and how I came into it. So, uh, Obviously, looks-wise, the Broncos been kind of a. Uh, I've always had kind of a secret uh, admiration for how they look, but um, I'm haven't pulled the trigger on, on getting one, and I doubt I will. But you know what? Uh, talk to me about what it's like getting them home, and especially compared to like your your experience in Basset Hounds, I guess. Well, um, he was an only puppy, so, and this gentleman was an elderly gentleman, so. He was, he didn't have the best mobility in the world. So, um, house training this dog was quite a feat because he had been accustomed to going, be, going to the bathroom in the house. So that was tough, but he's a, he is a very smart dog. Um, he, you know, you talk about the Broncos they definitely have a different demeanor. He's kind of goofy. Um, he's really loving, um, but he's got a great nose and he's got, uh, really high prey drive and everybody says well man they look slow this dog is not slow <laughs> he is he's got wheels i'm telling you this dog can move and he can hunt all day he's got that brocco gate and he can just fly and it just looks like he's just kind of coasting over the the field there but um he's a really cool dog we like him a lot um he's he's a lot of fun tito well, how long were, did you have just the Bracco? How long did you just have Tito until all of a sudden you uh, y- you got a little intrigued by the Poodle Pointer? Well, I'll back up there because the Poodle Pointers, I got my first Poodle Pointer in 2010. I got the Bracco in 2019, I believe. Okay. So I've been a, a Poodle Pointer guy for a long time, um, the, and, and I still am. I mean, I, I've got – this is – um, my puppy now that I have, he, well, I said, call him a puppy. He's probably about a year and a half now, but he's, uh, my third. So I've, I've had three different poodle pointers and two with us right now. So, um, uh, that's another story. Um, <laughs> I was, uh, playing on the internet one night and I said, my wife and I had bought our, our property. We're kind of like you, Nick. We've got, uh, like a little piece of property outside of town and we do a lot of improvements on it and everything. And, um, we have a really nice duck pond on it and I'd been shooting some ducks on it. This was, in, we bought it in 2008. So I've been shooting some ducks and kind of, you know, picking them up on my own and everything. And I was like, you know, it really would be nice to have a dog to do this, but I wanted something different. So I didn't want a lab. I'd had labs in the past. Um, I got to looking on the internet one night. Uh, it was kind of a slow night at work and I found a mid South Navda chapter where I met you. Yep. And I saw a picture of a poodle pointer on there. It's like, they can run poodle pointer. I mean, they can run labs in this thing. And, <laughs> you know, mistake number one in the poodle pointer world and kind of nabbed, I guess. But anyway, I did more research on the photo and, and I thought, man, that sounds like a cool dog. And I started researching it and everything and um, wound up getting a puppy from a guy outside of Atlanta. And um, it was actually the first dog you ever sold. 
poodle mm. pointer you ever sold. So, right. um, so that was my my intro into poodle pointer world. Gotcha. So, so your kind of past experience and growing up and and your affinity for beagles led you to the Brocco route later on, but then you had some experience with labs and that just kind of a little bit of boredom on the internet led you to the poodle pointer. Uh, yeah. What, what was it like when you, you said that you had history with, with both hounds, bassets, and then, uh, and, and then your labs, what was it like getting a poodle pointer and kind of, it sounded like I'm assuming that you got it with the intention of doing NAVDA after looking into it. Well, not really. Um, <clears throat> I mean, Growing up, I hunted doves, um, still loved to hunt doves, got into duck hunting some. I'd never really done a whole lot of upland hunting. You know, I'd never really done that, but um, I was intrigued by it. And I had a couple buddies that, you know, we were talking about getting into it more. We were just out of college, so we had a little bit of, you know, not being college guys anymore. We had a little bit of money and um, able to travel a little bit and do some hunting and he'd gotten a, a Boykin, which is not typically an upland dog, but, um, you know, we had a lot of aspirations to do some things like that, uh, do some travel hunting type stuff. So I got the poodle pointer and, um, we wound up in North Dakota that fall. And I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. My dog didn't know what he was doing. You know, we were just kind of bumbling along looking for these pheasants and, had no no experience so we were learning as we went and i remember like on like the third day of the hunt i saw him go into a track i mean i could tell he was on a bird and i saw him point and i walked up there and that rooster flushed up and i shot it and he retrieved that thing to me and i was like oh man this is hook game on here <laughs> yeah hook line and sinker so the rest of that trip he had some really good um you know young dog work and when i got back i i called uh mid-south i just i think i emailed them and um they reached out to me and said that you know the test for february was full maybe you could try the test in uh florida which i did palmetto chapter and um <clears throat> i mean this dog had not been trained in nabda i knew nothing about nabda i'd never been to a training day the only thing I knew was from what the website had on it, you know, and I had looked up on in the green book. I was a member then. I, I went ahead and registered and got a green book, read all about the NA test and showed up with like a casserole for, you know, the potluck dinner. Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we ran the next day and uh, he got a prize one 108. And man, I was the happiest guy in the world. You know, I mean, yeah. I was like, man, this this is pretty awesome. So that was my intro to NAVDA. And then I joined the Mid-South chapter and, and that's eventually where I met you that, that one, one test. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's one good thing about the natural ability test is, is really, it is just more of a, you, you don't really have to train for the test. It is a natural ability. You know, you expose them as you did, you went up to North Dakota, you shot birds and, and genetically speaking, as long as they kind of have those characteristics and those traits built in, they're going to do just fine on the NA test, but you still have to expose them. You still have to put them in the situation. And, you know, I know it, it, it's kind of, uh, I don't know, splitting the splitting hairs here, but like there is a difference between just exposure and training. 
And uh, while that you're like a perfect example, you knew nothing about NAVDA. You didn't really train for it at all. You just went and you've exposed your dog to the different elements of the test. And then you showed up and you had a great result. And I, I think that's really what the NA test is great about doing. And then it, it kind of gets your foot in the door, gets you comfortable, gets you at the experience of testing as well as meeting other people that that are kind of doing it and then next thing you know you're you're hooked even more and then fast forward you have even more dogs and and you're more active in in doing it you know repeatedly again over and over again so did you move on from the na test like everybody else you're all fired up kind of considering the ut test you know walk me through the next steps in in the journey i kind of did um and yeah i went to a few training days and we did some things. I built a training table, all that a whole nine yards, and I worked with him. And somehow, somewhere along the way, I just kind of fell out of it. Um, and I just basically, I mean, he was a, a good, I mean, as far as a meat dog goes, I mean, he was a good, good hunting dog. I mean, he retrieved ducks. He We went pheasant hunting that same place every year uh, for a week. And, um, you know, we got into, of course, doves down here and did some uh we do you know there's not a lot of wild quail in the southeast is well documented on all right. your shows but <laughs> um yeah uh but you know i mean we did some preser- plantation hunts and stuff like that and huh, i remember showing up with him the first time they were like what in the world did you bring that <laughs> dog down here for you know like you know this is english pointer country down here so uh and some short hairs and stuff they know what those are but they did not know what a poodle pointer was uh, same thing with the Bronco. When I showed up with that Bronco there, they were like laughing at him and stuff. And that is one of the fun. That is one of the fun things about the versatile breeds. The esoteric breeds is showing up, and people are like, "What the heck is that?" And then if they go yeah. out and have a good day, it, it just blows their mind when they're watching something that they've never seen. You know, like a like a Bronco. You know, just the coonhound running in the field, pointing birds. They're kind of like, "What in the heck is this?" Uh, it, it's always a blast. I always love kind of putting that that confused look on some people's minds. Even with my Munsty, I get that to to some extent. Is is people you know just get blown away by w- what is that, and then they go see them in action, especially in like a training setup to where they're really well versed. It's it's always fun kind of seeing their face response to those dogs. Right. Yeah. And <clears throat> one of the guys down there it was funny. Uh, I think Robin was with me on this hunt. She goes with me on those type hunts and she she likes to duck hunt too but um one of the guys he's a younger guy still in college he's like hey uh can i borrow that brocco for like the weekend to take that to college because <laughs> i'm telling you women love broncos i don't know what it is about them those big they, floppy ears man i yeah, man, I, I had it with my coonhound too when i was single man it's yeah. like the the coonhound definitely got more of the ladies than I did <laughs> back in yeah, the day. Yeah. So yeah, there's something about yeah. those big floppy ears and hound dog eyes and stuff like that. Yep. And, uh, but anyway, yeah, we have a lot of fun with them. Um, of course, uh, the time that I met you, I was in a test in Tito. Um, and he had a great day that day until it came to water and he's yeah. not a big water dog, but, um, we had to use a bird at water that day and that was fine. I took a video like two days later and sent it to the, the senior judge of him retrieving one out of the a bumper out of the pond at my house. And she was like, yeah, he should have done that two days ago. Right. Yeah. I, re- I remember that. I mean, I remember that. I think that may have been the first Brocco I actually saw in person. I haven't seen yeah. too many of them. 
And uh, I do remember watching him in the field and the track and everything. And of course, he did everything good. And then I do remember the water kind of throwing him for a loop. Uh, yep. But, you know, it, it's always it stands out to me just again, because it's it's really the only Bronco I've, I've seen an actual person. So uh, it yep. is what it is. But yeah, so uh, fast forward, you know, since since Tito did the NA test, you know, walk me through. Did you did you end up going through utility with any of the dogs or did you really just focus primarily in on hunting? Um, I've got, uh, my second poodle pointer, Cyrus. Um, I lost my first one. Um, he left the yard and, and got out in the road. And unfortunately Man. I lost him that way. And back then that was in 2016. I won't forget the date. It's August 11th. So it was right before hunting season, you know, like I just getting fired up for hunting season and, and now I've lost my hunting dog. Mm. So it was pretty, it was pretty rough. I mean, um, and I, I mean, you know, I love all my dogs and I had a big love for him because he was my first versatile dog and, uh, we'd been on a lot of things. So I, I started calling around after a couple of weeks and, um, back then there weren't a whole lot of poodle pointer puppies available. Um, it's a little bit different story nowadays, but I think I, I had a list and I think I still have it somewhere of all the it was 10 different breeders that I'd talked to emailed, called, um, sent pictures, everything, just trying to get on a puppy list. And, um, one guy from Pensacola, Florida, he called me back when I, I sent him an email and then I called him and he said, well, I was hoping you'd call me. I wasn't going to respond to your email, but I wanted you to call me. Okay. Said, okay. That's fine. And uh, I wound up. Did he have his email address on his website? Like people like that kind of bug me. It's like, well, I'll put well, I'll put your email address out there if you don't want people to email you. Well, I don't know. I guess it was just such a high demand for the dogs then that he didn't have to. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know his thought <laughs> process behind it. Um, but I like old Doug, he's a good guy, man. I wound up getting a puppy from him. It was a pick of the litter. And um he called called me on opening day of dove season in Kentucky, I was sitting on a dove field. I had doves flying all around me and he called me. I said, Pensacola, Cola, Florida. And I had to answer that phone call. You right. know, I, I mean, I'd been, like I said, I mean, I'd called like 10 different breeders and couldn't get on a list for anybody. Nobody had any puppies available. And <clears throat> he said, well, I got a puppy for you if you want it. I was like, all right, sounds good. So his name is Early Season Cyrus, Juniper Creek's Early Season Cyrus. And it's because I got got him on the first day of the of dove season 2016, I guess. Mm. So that's why I named him that. But I've taken Cyrus through all the um all well, I say all, three of the levels of NABDA. I mean, he he of course did NA. We did the UPT test with him, which didn't turn out too well. Um, and then I took him to utility when he was two and a half years old and, um, got a prize for him there. So nice. Um, so I've done all the levels with him. Okay. Well, not all three of the four. Sorry. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and, and so you, you got a prize. Did you, did you, I'm assuming that, uh, you didn't get a prize one to go on to the invitational. What, no. what, what, what kind of caught you guys up? What was the hurdle on y'all's test? Well, I knew going into it, um, his steadiness wasn't the best. But that, that was my main focus at the time, was trying to get him steady as I could. And um, so I kind of had backed off of his duck search training a little bit. So in the end, we got caught up with both of them a little bit. But um, we wound up with a prize three. And 
Um, I mean, he's been a great dog, man. He's a great family dog. Yeah. Um, he's, there's no telling how many birds he's retrieved for me. Doves, ducks, pheasants. Whenever, whenever I got him, I'll get back to that. Um, I got him, he was eight weeks old. In a week, I was leaving to go to North Dakota. So I had a year and a half old daughter and a nine week old puppy. And I was like, I can't, can't leave him here. And my wife will divorce <laughs> me or throw all my stuff out when I get back. Yeah. You're never so, going on another hunting trip again after that. <laughs> yeah. So I loaded him up nine weeks old and hauled him up to North Dakota. And um, he got to smell his first wild pheasant up there. Um, there's an old barn that we usually go to like middle of the day and kick around at and um, just kind of pot shoot some pigeons. The guy, farmer doesn't like, like them around. So we'll shoot them. And, and there was one that was kind of half alive and he retrieved it. Mm. Nine weeks old. Yeah. And, I mean, I, man, that was, was like, I got to do something with this dog. So <laughs> You know, he's always been a strong retriever and um, a really good dog. He's had some really good years in Upland and waterfowl, everything. So, yeah. Well, talk to me about it. You know, obviously, you say that you keep going back to North Dakota to that same pheasant spot. Do you do any other traveling outside of that pheasant trip, or is that just kind of your annual deal to where that's that's what you like to do? Is you go to North Dakota, hunt pheasants, and then you come back home? Um, yeah, we, we do that. We actually swapped up this year and went to a different spot because we lost a lot of our access and there's not a lot of public land in that particular area. Um, so we went a little bit further west, but yes, we do that trip. Um, we, like I was mentioning earlier, we go to Kentucky every year and uh, dove hunt, uh, for the opener for that. Um, I've been to Florida several times for, um, diver hunts. Um, we hunt a lot here. I mean, I hunt. Uh, like I told you earlier, before we started recording, I shot a doe this morning and um, cleaned her before we started this this session. And and I'll, I've I fur tracked uh, blood tracked deer with my poodle pointers, um, so I, I saved uh, like a mason jar full of blood and the two front hooves, and I'll work on that with them at some point in time. Probably freeze it and yeah. do it later. So I mean, we do a lot of hunting around here. Um, I plant my front yard is a dove field. So, um, so, I mean, I plant sunflowers every year and do a lot of habitat work and we have more quail here, but we don't hunt hunt them because they're just not enough. Right. Um, I've gotten into snipe hunting around here a little bit too. That's pretty fun. Um, so yeah, I, I, once September hits, I mean, we're hunting from September till March. Yeah. And that is the fun thing about, you know, the, the versatile dogs. I mean, that's, that's literally what they're supposed to be doing is a little bit of everything. And, and, yep. you know, it, you can get them and, and specialize in any one thing. It's, it's, you know, your dog, do it, do what you want. But the versatile breeds is, is they are supposed to be that Swiss army knife. You know, you are supposed to go yep. hunt pheasants one day and then go home and, and just sit there and retrieve some dove. And then the next day track deer. And then the next day, maybe go retrieve some ducks and then, yeah, stuff like that. It's uh, it, it's always fun. It gives you something to do around the clock, no matter what time of season it is. So I do appreciate uh, that about the versatile dogs for sure. Talk to me about the tracking. You know, uh, that's something that I've touched on a little bit here and there, depending on who I'm talking to on the podcast. But that's, you know, I don't think it's come up too often in profile episodes of people that actually use their versatile dogs to track deer. So how much of it was taught with the saved blood and hooves that you you referenced a minute ago? And then how much of it was kind of natural? Can you kind of speak to me about how you went about introducing it and working it and how often stuff like that? 
Well, honestly, it was all natural. Um, I, I, I saved this for my, my puppy that I have now. Um, but I just, I would get to where I would take, uh, Cyrus with me whenever I, I went, uh, my dad's farms about 30 minutes, uh, east of me. So I'll go over there and that's kind of like my home deer base. Like I, I, that's where I prefer to hunt deer generally. Um, we have some deer behind our house too, but, um, but anyway, I, I'd take him with me and, and he'd be in the kennel in the truck. And, and if I shot a deer, I'd just take him over there to it and see what happened. Honestly, I mean, that's really what happened. I mean, it's all natural. Like he, he found one in a nice buck in um, a clear cut that I would have never found. I mean, that clear cut was um, right at six foot tall. I mean, it was eight foot tall and it was thick and the deer didn't bleed. I mean, he went in there on that track and it didn't start bleeding until about 15 yards before we found him. And, and, um, and I would just, if I'd shot a doe or something like that, I would take him. Um, even if I knew where she was, I just kind of let him find her. Um, you know, and you know, I guess that's training. It's on the job training, I guess. Well, I mean, to me, that's no different than us going out in a field and planting a bird. We know where the bird's at, but we still want the dogs. It's actually, if you kind of think about it, you can shoot a doe, wander off. You can see it from afar, fall down, and you know exactly where it's at, but there's none of your foot scent around it. So it's actually still a little more natural than what we do with these pen-raised birds and launchers in in a field. So uh, I was actually talking to a listener about this the other day is, is he was wanting to work his dog on tracking deer and uh he had recently just shot a couple deer but he was like i haven't brought the dog out because they just you know they go 40 yards and and drop down so i I don't need them i'm like yeah but that's exposure that's reps getting them used to it and it's getting the reward and uh he you know a lot of people just don't think of it in that way but to me like I don't care if you're in a tree stand and it goes 20 yards and drop. I mean, I did that with Lucy The you know, I haven't done a whole bunch of deer tracks with her, just, you know, the occasional one that I shoot myself, but that's how I introduced her is the first buck that she tracked for me was I sat there and watched it go 25 yards and drop. I still went wide, circled wide, grabbed her, got the check cord. And I mean, we treated it like any kind of normal track that would go 500 yards. And, uh, so yeah, I mean to to me, it's like I don't care. To to your point, if if it's down, go get a rep, get some exposure for yeah. them. Either way, the dog's gonna enjoy it. Like who cares if if they don't get a full on you know five hundred yard lesson? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's still a win in my book. Oh yeah, and um, I've used it for a couple of my buddies too, and you know they couldn't find the deer. I took Cyrus out there with me, and and he's found a couple of nice bucks, and even found a hog one time too. So nice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just something like you said, I mean, something fun to do. Yeah. Get out of the house. It's it's a way to where, you know, uh, you can be the avid bird hunter all you want, but you know, if if you're going to go hunt deer and take a break from the birds, it's still a way to include your buddy, include your include your dog in the process to where it's, you know, that they don't have to play a pl- part in, you know, searching out and hunting the deer for you, but recovering it whether you need it or not, it's still just a fun thing to include them in. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, it, it, you've had a few different dogs to kind of bounce around with and, and do NAVDA within varying degrees and then pheasant hunting and, and all, all these different random activities that you do with them. Talk to me about some of the learning curves. You know, I ask all the, the same two questions to everybody that comes on for a profile episode. Talk to me about 
uh, something that you did go to work on your dog with and train and that you screwed up that really kind of opened your eyes to where it was just a learning experience to where you immediately said, all right, well, let's not do that one again. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I had looked at a couple of books and um, thought I knew what a force fetch program was with Cyrus. And, and I thought I'd, done a good job with it and uh, whenever we went and did that <laughs> upt test i found out that my force fetch program was just not good i mean he didn't he didn't do what he should have done um so um that was a, a a big learning curve for me um you know i mean i had a learn on the go with that uh we started back over from square one and and he really is a natural retriever but um, I know whenever I was trying to send him across that pond that first time, he, he just, he didn't go like I wanted him to. And they said, and that was one of the comments, you're going to have to work on fetch. Mm. And, and that's what we turned around and we did. Um, we, we came back home and went back to the drawing board and went, worked on that. So I guess that was a learning curve. I mean, I've listened to all your episodes on the different methods and things. Um, I was a, I'm an ear pinch guy, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Th- tell me, you know, what, after you realized that it didn't connect on your, your first attempt and you went back to the drawing boards and, and you've kind of listened to to more information and, and become a little bit more educated on it, like reflecting on it, it do you have any, any particular parts that, you know, or theories as to why it didn't connect the first time? Like what were you doing as a handler that you think that just was missing the missing the ball? Well, I know this has also been mentioned on your podcast. Like, um, you know, different dogs are, are that just that. They're different. They have different personalities and all. My first dog, I mean, he was – you could do anything to him, and he was he was just a hard-headed dog, and he was, he was pretty determined he was going to do it. Uh, Cyrus is a little bit softer in that manner. So some of the methods that I used with him – just weren't as good. I mean, I, I had to do go to more reward-based things and make it more fun, make it more enjoyable. And, and I've learned that that's a big thing that I've learned, I guess you would say. Mm. Um, yeah. Just so, matching the dog's personality to the level of enthusiasm. The train, yeah. Right. And to the training methods that you're, you're utilizing. Yeah. So, and, and the same way with the Bracco there, <laughs> I bought my wife a book and, for Broncos for Christmas or something like that. And she was reading it on one of our trips one day. And it's, I think it was a reprint from Italy in the 1500s. And it mentioned like back then that Broncos are rewarded by food. They're food driven and praise. And, and it was talking about small bits of meat and cheese. So, I mean, I've learned, I've learned that, you know, rewards a good thing for, for these versatile dogs, especially ones that are a little bit softer tipped temperament wise yeah um, and, and you know and like you said that's it's different for every dog i mean i've seen some dogs that couldn't give a it couldn't give a lick about some food or reward based stuff when you know it's when you get them in the training environment they're all business and you try mm-hmm. and give them some kibble they're just looking at you like what the heck are you doing i'm here to work just let me get that bird <laughs> yeah and then you have some that you know it's just like if you look at them wrong they're like what do i do wrong i don't, I don't and they shut down and so uh that's the importance i tell everybody you know if, if you're brand new to this don't don't shy away from force fetch educate yourself because to me the process I, I i'd like to get your take on this uh going through it the first time like 
if you go through it, that will teach you more about what type of dog as well as you, is the type of trainer or handler that you are throughout the whole process. So like you said, you don't know what you don't know, but I love the force fetch process because it will teach you so much about your dog and just how it learns and how you interact with it. And it really solidifies that bond. Like I'm a huge component of everybody doing force fetch with their own dog. If they do the proper preparation and they come at it with mm -hmm. the right lens and they don't just go in there and thinking that like, Oh yeah, just, you know, drag them by the ear and make them do it. Uh, you know, if they approach it the right way, I think it can be one of the most valuable, uh, training programs that you can do with your dog. And it builds a bond. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it, it just builds that bond and that respect and trust. So, yeah. And I've done it now with uh, my two poodle pointers. Um, uh, my youngest one, he just walking behind me over here. But um, he's, it's fun to see the progression. You know, whenever they start to get it, that light bulb turns on. It's just cool to see it. And I've got a lot of friends that I bounce ideas off of now. Um, and, you know, everybody has their own approach, but if you kind of take a little bit over here and take a little bit over there and make form your own way, it's, uh, it just seems to work out, I guess. Absolutely. Hopefully. Yep. Well, on to the second question that I ask everybody on these episodes, what's, uh, what's your favorite episode guest topic, you know, what, whatever that, that you found valuable or you really enjoyed when you were listening to it? Um, I'm, course i like all your different series they were all interesting to me um training with mo that was really cool um but one that i like the best and i've not heard anybody mention it yet but um the johnny house uh episode was cool to me i loved it i mean i i kind of i have not made a johnny house yet but i've um utilized uh i met a guy that um he's got like eight on his property and whenever I was training um, my puppy for NA, or not training for NA, but exposing my puppy for NA, right. we started utilizing his Johnny houses. And I'm telling you, they've made a huge difference. Yeah. Um, but but I like that episode because he got uh, the gentleman, I can't remember his name right now. Mark he Fulmer, got into I believe. The, yep. Okay. Yep. And he, he got into his, his design. And I just remember, see, I, I built – several um homing pigeon houses on my place and i kept having trouble with snakes and i kept having trouble with raptors and i remember just one of the points that he made is he just lowered his little standing uh pla platforms for his birds down for like a foot or a foot and a half or whatever and that made just a huge difference and i did that with my um latest pigeon coop and i've not had any trouble with raptors except for once when I left the, the Bob door open. <laughs> and it's and amazing. It you do it one night and, and yeah. next thing you know, there's a, there's a red tail a sitting in your, <laughs> sitting in your Johnny house the next yep. day. Yep. So, um, but I tighten it up where the rat snakes can't get in there and, and the raptors can't see them as well. So I think it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, but even utilizing that um, Johnny house, uh, this gentleman that uh, allowed us to come down there and, and work on his place. I mean, it, we, I think I took Tucker down there probably five or six times before his test. And the difference between the first and the last time was 
I mean, it was just so much. He had learned so much by those birds because they're not wild birds, but they act pretty daggum squirrely. I yeah. mean, they act. They made him respect them, and we're going to utilize it a lot more um, for his upcoming utility test, which we're working on now. Awesome. So, yeah, yeah. I, I can I can uh, piggyback off of that the value of Johnny houses, and I'm actually in the process of of trying to incorporate that here on my own property is it when you fly them they're healthy flying birds you can mm -hmm. let them out to where there is no hand scent there's no foot scent you as the handler don't even know where they are it really is like when you stop and think about it it is kind of the closest thing to a wild bird situation to where you can protect those birds to where like yeah you can go quote unquote liberate a whole bunch of birds on your property and then spend however long you know however long they last against the predators you can keep getting some work in on them but when you have the johnny house and they can come back in and get get some shelter and protect them you can just continuously get reps on it and uh you know it you, you listen to that episode on the Johnny House with Mark, and then you go listen to the episode coupled with uh, Martha Greenlee and how she approaches her bird intro and exposure and just letting the birds teach the dogs. As long as you have healthy flyers in there, uh, which if you let them out on a regular basis, they're, they're going to be conditioned flyers, and you don't even need a flight pin. You don't need any of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, that that's something that I'm glad you brought that up because I think you are the first person on a profile episode to bring that specific episode up. And, uh, that, that one's chock full of, of good tips and tricks, whether you're building a Johnny house for, for quail or building a Johnny house for pigeon, like you talked about. Yep. Yep. I'm yeah, curious, I mean, it, it, uh, it, not to interrupt you, I'm curious on the rat snake problem you had on your pigeon coop because I've I've had a couple rat snakes get into mine. I haven't had a problem with rat snakes taking out my actual birds. It's kind of like they go in there and they steal a couple eggs, but I haven't had them <laughs> take out any of the birds. Did, were you having a problem with them actually taking out the birds? <clears throat> yeah, um, they would get, especially, you know, the squeakers that were almost already plumed out. Um, they would, they would go in there and they can't, they can't swallow them, but they'll start and they'll, you can see their head, their feathers are all slicked back where the snake was trying to swallow it and figured out that it's not going to work. Mm. But, um, I came home one day and there were five rat snakes in our pigeon coop. Two well, two were on the outside, three were on the inside. Mm. And I was like, this is just not gonna work. Yeah. Um, so I mean, there's a point in time where you have to say there's an enough is enough. So I relocated it away from a, a wood line where I had it and made it way more snake tight, I would right. say. Gotcha. So it's it's they can't get in. I've seen one on the actual um outside before, but it never made its way in. Yeah. So yeah, they were kind of a nuisance. Yeah, and those listening, somebody, I guarantee you, somebody's hearing this, and they're like, "Well, just kill the snakes." I'm like, "I'm sorry, I'm I'm taking the, I'm keeping the snake in the area. I actually like them. They balance out. They kill all the rats that can bring disease into your loft and and stuff like that. But then also, they, you know, even rat snakes, they're opportunistic. They will, they will, and are capable of taking out some of the uh, venomous snakes that we don't want hanging around us uh and so to me like you start having those rat snakes around it keeps the food 
food supply that those other snakes are attracted to down at the very least. And, and there's just, you know, at the very end of the day, I, I think it may be, be different state by state, but like, you know, killing a snake is a, is illegal in most areas, uh, unless, unless it's actually like a, a depredation issue, but, uh, there is a process to it, but there is value to snakes. And so you don't want to just go chopping the head off of every snake that comes up in your pigeon coop. Yep. And, <laughs> Um, and Georgia is, it is illegal to kill non-venomous snakes. Mm. Um, so, um, we have, we did have a snake incident with, uh, my youngest puppy this year. Um, Uh yep. Uh, he was bitten on the muzzle, uh, by a rattlesnake in our yard. In your yard. In our yard. Yeah. So, um, I was at work and my wife was at home and she realize what happened and she did dispatch that snake which um he will be destined she told me that he was going to be uh i put him in the freezer he's going to be made into dog collars one day <laughs> it's a it's a warning so, to all other rattlesnakes <laughs> yeah but i mean you know that was kind of a scary uh scary deal i mean you're sitting there with your puppy that's uh just gotten hit by a rattlesnake i mean you don't know what's going to happen but he came through it fine. He spent a couple nights at the vet. They never did have to give him antivenom, which we're fortunate. Um, yeah. Well, I told her, told the vet, I was like, if you need to, you please, please give it. I mean, this, <laughs> but uh, fortunately, his, his bite wasn't so severe that he had to have it. So um, a week later after that, he was retrieving dust for me. There you go. Yeah. I mean, he's a tough little bugger. Yep. I love it. Well, man, yeah. it, I'm glad we finally made this happen. I appreciate, you know, your your patience over the past week or two with, with my kind of scheduling hiccups here and there. But, uh, yeah, it was fun catching up with you and hearing a little bit more backstory. And I uh, look forward to the next time our, our paths cross and maybe we can drop some dogs and, and get after some birds at some point. Yeah, man, I'd love to. Yep. All right, man, I appreciate yep. it. All right, Nick, have a good one. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again and a year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukanuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukanuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.